Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It is Friday, December 23rd, and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week here on KYMN Radio. Public Policy This Week is dedicated to the honest and open discussion of public policy issues. Each week we take a look at specific policy subjects, and we have guests on the show that are experts in their field. I'm Rich Larson, and partnering with me today is my dear friend, Joe Moravchik. James Madison was the primary author of the Bill of Rights, ratified in 1791. Included is, of course, the First Amendment, which has two provisions concerning religion, the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. The Establishment Clause prohibits the government from establishing a a religion, and the Free Exercise Clause protects the citizens' right to freely practice their religion. We're a country premised upon a separation of church and state. However, politics is now, and from our founding, has been intertwined with religion. Today on Public Policy This Week, we are going to, dis- going to discuss the intersection of politics and religion and the content and impact of religious communication in politics. Our guest joining us in the studio is Chris Chapp, Associate Professor of Political Science at St. Olaf College. Professor Chapp teaches classes on American politics and research me- methodology courses with titles such as American Politics, Media and American Politics, Analyzing Politics, and political parties and elections. In addition to teaching, Professor Chap's primary research interests involve voting behavior and electoral campaigns in the United States, political psychology and public opinion, political campaign communication, inequality, religion and politics, and methods of research. And he plays guitars in the world's greatest unknown rock band. <laughs> And if he wasn't busy enough, Chris was named in July of this year as the Morrison Family Director of the Institute for Freedom and Community at St. Olaf College. We'll ask him more about that appointment later in the program. Chris received his Ph.D. from the University of Minnesota in 2008. Before that, he completed his undergraduate degree from the University of Wisconsin. Great. I am surrounded by badgers. That's just wonderful. Yeah, there's more coming on that. Yeah, oh, I'm Wisconsin, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Umia. No, not that's. I get that. Skyuma. There we go. Chris is the author of a book titled Religious Rhetoric in American Politics, The Endurance of Civil Religion and Electoral Campaigns. He is currently working on a second book with Paul Gorin from the University of Minnesota on the politics of abortion and LGBT LGBT rights due out in 2023. When not teaching or researching political science topics, Chris enjoys spending time with his family at Northern Lake Cabin, watching college football, woodworking, and powerlifting. Professor Chris Chapp, welcome to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio. Thanks. It's great to be here. Chris, where did you grow up? I uh, grew up all over the place, mostly in Wisconsin, though. Mostly area. Okay, yeah. so yeah, you are you are a badger through and through then. I, I certainly am. And we, we, we know that Joe is. Okay. Well, all right. And that cabin's in on the Wisconsin side of the border, so <laughs> so I've still got one foot in the state. My my family has uh, has a has a cabin in in, in Wisconsin also. It's uh, it's it, to my utter and you know complete shame, but whatever. <laughs> no, nobody's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Well, let's get into our discussion. Uh, Chris, what is faith? What is religion? How does a political scientist like yourself think about religion? How do you think about religion in the context of politics? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question to start with. Um, and, and theologians might split hairs with some of these answers, but when political scientists talk about faith, usually what we're talking about is an individual experience, mm-hmm. someone's own personal uh, relationship with with God, for example, um, and when we talk about religion, that's sort of a collective faith, faith in you know a bunch of people that have faith in the same deity. Um, now, in the context of politics, this is really interesting. And social scientists usually break down religion into three categories, each which is important uh, to relig- to uh, American politics uh, in in different ways. And we sometimes call these the three B's: uh, belonging, belief, and behavior. Belonging is probably uh, the most, uh, the, what, what most people think of first. Oftentimes, uh, it could be belonging in a particular denominational tradition, so Lutheran or, or Catholic or Jewish or, or whatever. Um, by belief, usually what we're talking about are the different sort of 
theologically held beliefs uh, that people have. Um, it could mean other things as well, a particular image of God. Do you think of God as paternal or maternal? Mm-hmm. Th- these are beliefs mm-hmm. that can actually impact politics in some really interesting ways. And then by behavior, uh, what we mean is the types of things that you do. Uh, the you know Worship attendance uh, being sort of the most classic, but, but even daily prayer, prayer before a meal, uh, these are religious behaviors that that actually can can have important political implications, and you can imagine different ways that this might play out. Some might someone might have been raised um, in a religious tradition where members of that tradition typically vote for Republicans or vote for Democrats, and this might be because of sort of ethno-religious allegiances to a particular party, uh, or it might be because of beliefs. So, uh, for example, people with more authoritative understandings of of what God is versus more benevolent understandings of, of God actually have very different looking political attitudes. Or uh, it could be from cues that one gets from clergy on Sunday. Um, even though there's prohibitions about what, what clergy can and can't say about politics, um, if you attend regularly, um, this, this gets to the behavior aspect, if you attend regularly, you might be more exposed to these cues and that might shape your political thinking. So, these varied conceptualizations of religion, behavior, belief, belonging, can impact politics in a lot of different ways. And political scientists argue about sort of what matters the most and what's the most important. Hmm. So, so what is civil religion and how is it distinct from religion in a more traditionally defined way? And then what are examples of civil religion? Yeah, so civil religion is really interesting. It's, it's what, I, what I wrote my first book on. Um, and I think to talk about civil religion, it's helpful to think about what makes America unique in some ways. Um, the United States has a really high degree of religious pluralism. Mm-hmm. Um, when you think about um, you know, how many different denominations and religious traditions um, have a foothold in the U.S., we also have really high rela- rates of religious adherence. Um, we'll talk about this more later. It's going yeah. down in some, way, in, in, in some ways, but... But compared to other nations, um, the U.S. still has really high rates of, of religious adherence. So for a civic leader, this creates a little bit of a challenge. Right? How do you appeal um, to a single religious group? You, you, know, you can't, uh, mm-hmm. you know, at least not without alienating other religious groups. And this is where this idea of civil religion comes in. So when we talk about civil religion, um, it's not you know, an official church uh, that that uh, people attend on Sunday. Um, the idea is that there are implicit religious values uh, that a nation holds and that Americans are united by some sort of quasi-religious common creed. Um, it's not a denominational creed. It's not based in the Bible. Um, and in fact, some refer to civil religion as a minimal monotheism. Right? It's in very, very basic beliefs. Um, in the American case, uh, it's often thought of as sort of a unique moral calling. Um, uh, have you heard the phrase uh, city on a hill? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. yeah. President Reagan. Yeah. Well, yeah. President Reagan, it actually goes oh, back yes. to 1630. Yes. Um, John, John Winthrop, right, yep. a, a Puritan preacher on the Arabella, um, uh, visiting, uh, visiting the New World for the first time. Um, and so it's, so it's hundreds of years old, popularized by Reagan. Right. Obama used it as well. Um, and, and a number of, and, and this idea of a shining city on a hill that America, um, is going to be sort of the moral compass for the world in, in some way, shape or form. It's a controversial idea, mm-hmm. but, but this really epitomizes, um, uh, what's meant by civil religion. It expresses itself in different ways. So, uh, we have, you know, religious phrases on our currency, uh, it's very rare to find a politician. Um, again, even though we have an establishment clause and yeah. a free exercise clause, it's very unusual to hear a political speech that doesn't end with something like God bless America or God bless our troops. Um, and so when we talk about civil religion, I'm not going to, you know, argue that it's, it's a good thing or that it's a bad thing. And in fact, there's, there's all sorts of arguments for and against the existence of civil religion. Um, at a normative level, is this something we should have? Um, but I would assert it's something that we do have, right? It's, it's really prevalent in American politics um, and that it has important functions, whether you, whether you think it's a good thing or not. 
um, such as engendering some sense of common identity or being a moral compass, a moral benchmark to which Americans can reflect and, 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 and criticize ourselves. Hmm. I'm just, I'm sitting here thinking about how strange it would feel to watch a state of the union address and not, if, if the president were to not say at the end, God bless America, it would feel, uh, the, the, the speech would feel unfinished. I mean, it just, that's just what we've always heard. Yeah, and I think it would. I think it would um, strike voters really yeah. as, as pretty odd as well. It um, would. That State of the Union address, when you think about the majesty, it almost, mm-hmm. it almost, and it it has sort of a procession as the president enters. It has almost a quasi-religious feel to it. Yes, it does. Um, it's also why I think when we break those norms, um, and you've heard you know examples in recent years about you know people shouting during the State of the yeah. Union or something like yep. that. I think why violating those norms is right. often seen as, you know, dare I say, sacrilegious right. in some ways. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you today. I, as, as a student of, of political science, I've talked to uh, people who have told me that they don't, they're not real strong people of faith, but politics sort of fills that. They feel like politics can fill that 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 void for them a little, or not the void, but that space for mm-hmm. them. It's, so, Chris, in in your estimation, then, this is the crux of of the whole show right here. How does religion impact politics, and then how does politics impact religion? Yeah, it's I mean it's a huge question. So I'll I'll try to unpack it a little bit, and then we can we can do follow ups if you want. Yeah. I mean, the, the first thing I would say is it depends again on what you mean by religion. Because right. as I as I said with the this sort of three B's approach, mm-hmm. um, we can think about you know clergy cues impacting religion. We can think about deep seated belief systems impacting religion. So so I needed to to put that caveat out there. The traditional view is that. Religion is rooted in the sort of fundamental bedrock beliefs. And it's pretty unshakable and pretty stable over one's life. So you can imagine um, you are born into a particular religious tradition. You learn that tradition from, uh, from your parents. Um, and in fact, um, parent-to-child transmission of religious identity is really, really common. You know, the best way to figure out what somebody's, you know, personal faith is is to is to ask their parents what your faith is. So, mm-hmm. so, um, so, parent-to-child religious socialization is uh, is very common. Um, and then, so you learn these fundamental worldviews through social learning, through going to Sunday school or going to worship services or, or whatever. And then this gives rise to a worldview that is, again, pretty unshakable and influences one's politics down the road mm-hmm. because you have certain values or, or whatever. Um, so that's, that's the traditional view. Um, in recent years in the social sciences, uh, a number of scholars, myself included, have started to push back at this a little bit. Um, and there's different versions of the argument, but the, the, the basic point here is that first off, religious worldviews, religious values, even, you know, traditional uh, membership in a denomination, it's not as unshakable as is often assumed. Mm-hmm. Um, so people do uh, hop from, from one religion to another or disidentify or, or whatever. So, uh, and people's religious beliefs and practices change over the course of their life as well. It's still really strong. Um, but it's not as strong as, as was often um, assumed. Another observation is that some political attitudes are really, really stable and really, really enduring. Um, partisanship is one of those stable mm-hmm. and enduring attitudes. Rich, when you were talking about you know, how politics sort of fills that void, mm-hmm. right? for, some, for some folks, a partisan identity yeah. um, is way more stable and way more enduring and way more central to who they are as a person than a religious identity. Mm-hmm. And, so, um, and so the other thing uh, that I would say matters is attitudes on political issues. And again, the, the traditional view is always that, you, that religion sort of comes first and it influences all these downstream choices like how you feel about you know, immigration or gun rights or taxes or abortion. Um, my co-author Paul Gorin and I um, have questioned this view um, and we have found that in fact, 
attitudes toward abortion and attitudes toward LGBT rights are actually really, really stable over time um, and are predictive of changes in religious identity later in life. So, so translation, people's attitudes on abortion are changing um, their patterns of religious affiliation hmm. and religious practices and, and, and so on and so forth. Chris, define secularism for our audience. Is American society becoming a more secular society? Is there a disaffiliation from organized religious institutions taking place? There seems to be and has been for decades. If so, why is that? Perhaps it's a decline in institutional trust. How is that affecting politics and religion's influence on politics? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I think you answered part of it already in, in, in asking the question that, that we see trust in all sorts of institutions going down across the board, whether yeah. we're talking about... Um, media as an institution, as we sit here on the radio, uh, whether, whether we're talking about um, uh, religious institutions, uh, law enforcement, yeah. government. I mean, so, so there's uh, institutional trust almost across the board um, is, is, um, is decreasing. Um, when we talk about secularism, what we're talking about is a movement away from religion. Scholars talk about this in different ways. Sometimes you, you know, arise in people that are atheist or agnostic in their beliefs. Um, another way that you see this talked about and characterized, and, and what I like to focus on, um, is what you might call the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. So uh, <laughs> these are folks that, that just don't identify with a particular religious tradition. It doesn't mean that, that they're um, atheist or agnostic um, or, or completely devoid of, of, of faith, but certainly don't have a strong um, loyalty to any particular religious tradition. Um, so uh, the percentage of Americans that identify as none has been increasing fairly dramatically uh, over the last 30 years. It's more prominent in some traditions than others, but it's really across the board. It's more common um, disaffiliation among younger folks, um, but it's actually, it's actually going on uh, everywhere. Um, and back to my research with, uh, with Paul Gorin, um, we think this is connected in some ways to politics. Politics uh, have turned some folks off of religion. Um, a lot of Americans don't like that intermingling. They see politics and religion as too closely bound. And, and for that reason, uh, some Americans, uh, well, because of politics, some have become even more um, in, uh, you know, strongly identified with a particular mm -hmm. religious community. Mm -hmm. But the movement in the other direction has been even stronger. Hmm. Well, Chris, certainly one of your interests is research methodology. So let's talk about that for a minute. How do you analyze your topics of interest and study, such as public opinion and voting behavior? Yeah, and I mean, I, 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 I'm glad you asked this because sort of as I, um, as I sit here and make these claims about, you know, the percentage <laughs> of Americans who identify or don't identify and what's happening with voting behavior, it's helpful to talk a little bit about how we come to these conclusions. Um, so, you know, as a practical matter, I rely a lot on surveys. This is what I teach my students um, as well. So, um, so uh, you know, looking at big public opinion surveys, um, you know, some of these surveys are, are collected by um, other research institutions, but we're talking sometimes 40,000, 50,000 voters, so really big cross-samples of the American public. Um, usually quite a bit larger than the than the exit poll than the the polling that you see, you know, uh, um, like horse race polling around elections mm -hmm. and things like that. Mm -hmm. So rely a lot on surveys. Um, I also we're going to talk about political communication. I think a little bit later, and um, and I use text as data. So there's ways to to take um, you know whether it's Twitter feeds or campaign websites or political speeches or newspaper articles. Take all these words <laughs> that are out there. And look at patterns over time, and and try to figure out uh, how political rhetoric is is changing. So, so those are the the two big tools uh, that I use. Um, you know, one big thing is transparency. It's really important when we're doing this work that we're um, really clear about how we sample the public. There's a lot of controversy around surveys these days, oh, and who's yeah. getting sampled and yeah, who's not. Absolutely. So try to be really really clear about you know how we reach 
how we reach voters. Um, uh, for students, I really emphasize when I'm teaching this, emphasize things like replicability. Could somebody else have run this exact same study and come to the same conclusion? So sure. you've got to be really, really clear about what we did. Um, and then when people disagree, you know, they can maybe disagree with the approach and say, well, I don't, I don't like the way you, you ran that sample or I don't like the way you, you analyzed these, these groups or the way you asked this question about abortion. But at least then that's where the, the disagreement's at. Um, and I also think it's important to note, you know, it's, um, I call myself a political scientist. Some people, yeah. sometimes, sometimes people don't put the word science with politics, right. but, but I do. We, you know, we form hypotheses and, and try to go out in the world and test them. And one thing about science and scientific knowledge is that it's a process um, and it's open to revision. And so that's, that's a really big part of, of what I do is trying to, um, trying to learn things and, and be sort of self-critical mm -hmm. um, and, ask, and, and ask how things might might look different five, ten years from now. Right, right. Well, there's that. There's the phrase. There's lies, damn lies, and statistics. Right. <laughs> and I, I, I as a, a poli sci student, I always sort of took a little bit of uh, uh, offense to that because I mean, it it, it does, and it, it's always it's always uh, uh, attributed to political surveys and things. But uh, and frankly, the media also, which I you know, so I, I'm going to be offended all over the place on that. But it, it, it does sort of leave out the fact that, that there really is an interest in this. There's, there, in, in political science, there's anthropology, there's sociology, and, and, and that's what we're, we're talking about as much as anything. You like, know, we, we live in a world today where there is more information at our fingertips mm -hmm. than ever before. Um, and so I think, you know, one thing that we need to do as consumers of political information, mm -hmm. uh, as responsible consumers of political mm -hmm. information, is is to this is going to sound very self-aggrandizing because it's what I teach, <laughs> but I think we all need to have a little bit of research methods training to understand. Okay, how how was this collected? What are the critical questions that I should be asking about this about this claim that just got made in a public policy debate? How can I scrutinize this information right. so that I can go out into the world and make intelligent choices? Right. Hmm. For our listeners. You're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio in beautiful downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Rich Larson, alongside Joe Moravchik, and we're talking with uh, Professor Chris Chapp of St. Olaf College about the relationship between politics and religion. Chris, let's transition to political rhetoric. Preparing for the show, I was thinking about presidential candidates and their oratory abilities, or lack thereof. Presidents Kennedy... Reagan and Obama immediately come to mind as highly skilled public speakers. And I, I th also thought about great speeches that really resonated with people or have lasted the test of time in the context of our topic today. I reread Lincoln's 1864 address at Gettysburg to honor unions, Union soldiers that died in battle, dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. In that address, Lincoln remarks, these dead shall not have died in vain that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the, of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish from the earth. It's beautiful prose. And to think about his remarks, he said, the world will little note nor long remember what we say here. Uh, one of the events of my lifetime that I remember, Rich, perhaps you remember this distinctly mm -hmm. too, is when the Challenger space shuttle broke apart in January of 1986. Mm -hmm. I was a college student, and we were watching that launch live. It was certainly a distressing national event. What I remember most about that event was President Reagan's address to the nation about it, his eloquence, his genuineness, the beauty of his words. In that address, in that address he said, The crew of the Space Shuttle Challenger honored us by the manner in which they lived their lives. We will never forget them, nor the last time we saw them this morning as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye and slipped the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God. And of course, foundational to President Reagan's political career was his belief that God intended America to be a beacon of hope, faith, freedom, and democracy, as you mentioned earlier, that city on a hill. First, how common is religious rhetoric as a regular part of how candidates communicate with voters Second question, do citizens, or perhaps what percentage of citizens, base their decisions about candidates on their expressed religious beliefs and values? 
And third, are there any political addresses with religious rhetoric or that invoke God that you have found to be particularly effective? That's a long series of questions. Yeah, yeah. Let me I, I, let me try to take them in order. How common is religious rhetoric as a regular part of how candidates communicate? Um, the, the short answer is it's very common. Yeah. Um, and the the passages that you just read are really they harken back to what we talked about before. They're classic civil religion. Um, yeah. There's no particular religious subgroup that gets mentioned. Reagan's not calling out a particular faith tradition, um, not mentioning Christianity, um, not mentioning you know a, a denomination, not mentioning a religious interest group, um, you know, focus on the family or something like that. Um, really trying to appeal to as many voters as possible. So it's it's classic civil religion. In fact. Some scholars have referred to presidents as the high priests mm-hmm. of the American civil religion. And you can see how, uh, you know, you, these are great examples. I think we could also probably recall uh, George W. Bush on 9-11 yeah. um, mm-hmm. making some of these same sort of invocations. That, that, that speech uh, W. made with the bullhorn from, mm-hmm. from Ground Zero is the one that, that immediately comes to mind, where he was speaking off the cuff, but there was all kinds of... of uh, uh, religious rhetoric in, in just what he was saying right there. I don't don't mean to interrupt you. Apologize. No, no, no. That's I think it's it's a great example and, and the fact that you could just sort of so yeah. vividly recall it. Yeah. Um it, it kind of gets to an answer to the second part of the question, which is do student do do students, do citizens um vote based on this stuff? Um and and the answer to that I think is a little bit more complicated. You know, we have this sort of prohibition of too much religion and politics that's sort of normatively built into the American ethos in mm-hmm. some way. We don't, we don't want too much, most Americans don't want too much intermingling there. But at the same time, we also have expectations of candidates um, and want candidates who we share identity with and who represent us in some way. And so civil religion, this minimal monotheism, is one way that... Um, that candidates can make that appeal. And that's not to say that, that you know, in these moments of national tragedy, this isn't genuine either, um, mm-hmm. because I think for, for a lot of candidates, it, it is genuine. I'm not, I'm not cynical about that. But, but I, also, I also think that it, it does matter for voters. It has this sort of representative uh, function in some ways. So, um, so uh, and this is actually this is what I showed in, in our first book. We did a lot of things, but in particular... Look, used experiments hmm. where I would kind of create these fake candidate profiles and have voters look at different passages, some of which use these really um, almost banal religious references, mm-hmm. um, not in the context of a, like a national tragedy like these examples, but, but just in sort of advocacy for a policy position. Um, and sure enough, religious cues like this made people much more uh, favorable, um, not to all voters, um, non-believers, I did not resonate with in the same way, as well as folks from marginalized religious traditions mm-hmm. in the U.S. It, uh, mm-hmm. the, these civil religion cues um, didn't uh, didn't work in in quite the same way, um, but but in general, um, this is probably a you know again not to reduce these moments to strategy. <laughs> but it's probably a winning strategy for for most candidates most of the time. Yeah. I, I, I think of um, I think it's Maya Angelou who said people um, will forget what you say, but they won't forget how you made them feel. Yeah. And I've always attached that to 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 romance in political speech. And that's I mean that's just got to play right to exactly what you're talking about, isn't it? That that I mean. Uh, religion is something that's so deeply held. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's such an important uh, uh, part of uh, a lot of people's uh, personalities that when you appeal to that, or when you just even mention it, right? Mm-hmm. Does, doesn't isn't that just? I mean, it is a little cynical to call it strategy, but that's what we're talking about, isn't it? Yeah, it it evokes that emotion, and and ultimately, you know, candidates want you to like them and mm-hmm. to and to feel like you're one of them, mm-hmm. right? And this is one way that you can communicate that as, as a candidate. Yeah. In a review, or perhaps it was a summary of your book titled Religious Rhetoric in American Politics, the Endurance of Civil Religion in, in Electoral Campaigns, 
I read that effective religious rhetoric is characterized by two factors, emotive cues and invocations of collective identity. And these factors regularly shape the outcomes of American presidential elections and the dynamics of political representation. While we tend to think that certain issues are invoked to appeal to specific religious constituencies who vote solely on such issues, Professor Chap shows us that religious rhetoric is often more encompassing and less issue-specific. So that's the summary. What does it all mean? Please start first with identity and emotive rhetoric. Yeah, so the question that I was asking when I was looking at civil religion is specifically, you know, if, if this genre works, why does it work? What are the common elements? And uh, because, because, you know, Obama and George W. Bush, two very different candidates, are both using, you know, in, mm-hmm. invoking these, the genre in, in really in the same way. So I wanted to ask, you know, what, what's the common denominator? And identity and emotion um, are, are the two big things. So, so starting with identity, my, my background is political psychology. Mm-hmm. And in political psychology, we talk a lot about social identities. Um, we all have them. Social identities are how we organize the social world. Um, yeah, and you can think about anything from, you know, uh, uh, you know, Northfield Raiders, uh, to, um, to, you know, Badgers versus Gophers or, (laughs) or, or whatever, right? These, these social, or, and of course, uh, you know, religion, race, and so on and so forth. And so, um, social identities can be a force to unite people, but they can also be a a force, a source of conflict. Mm -hmm. And I I think we could all easily think of examples of intergroup conflict that have, have, have arisen, um, over, you know, these conflicting, conflicting groups, conflicting identities. And so, a question that social psychologists have been asking, well, forever, I guess, is what can you do to resolve these intergroup conflicts? Um, one thing that you can do is you can try to make the groups less salient, right? Try to not get me to think of myself as a Wisconsin Badger fan, right, <laughs> right. when I'm in the studio. <laughs> um, but that, that doesn't usually work, uh, right? It's, it's pretty tough to... to get people to not think of themselves um, as, as a group member. Another thing that you can do, though, that does work is you create a new group, right? A broader, overarching, common, uh-huh. common group identity um, that can unite people. And what I argue in the book is that civil religion plays this role. Not for everybody. It's not for everybody. But, but for a lot of voters, um, they can have this sort of shared kind of quasi-religious experience watching a particular candidate talk, even though those voters are coming from really radically different faith traditions, mm-hmm. um, because this, this civil religion can, can be this kind, of, this kind of common glue. So, so I, that's identity. Mm-hmm. And the other thing Rich already alluded to is, is emotion. Um, emotions it, often are disparaged, right? We, we, we often elevate sort of reason over emotion, um, that's kind of the, the enlightenment view of, uh, of how we're supposed to think about politics. It's also totally unrealistic, <laughs> right? No, nobody. And, and, and even, even the person, I would always be very suspicious of mm-hmm. anybody who says that there are sort of all reason, no emotion, because mm-hmm. the fact of the matter is emotions guide, um, decision-making in ways that we, um, that we don't even, uh, don't even realize. Um, and civil religion lends itself um, to emotive rhetoric and emotion and an emotional experience. Usually it's very positive. Um, you know, the emotion of enthusiasm, um, is one that I found is really, really commonly wedded to, uh, to American civil religion. Um, but it can, it can also be, you know, it could also create fear or anger depending on how it's invoked. Would you equate this idea of, of, of identity politics to tribalism or would you or is it a little more i don't know not quite as as uh uh deeply rooted as as someone just just a, a, the need the need to belong to a group where where, where do, you, do you think it's somewhere in between there or is it is it that deep oh i think yeah no i think you you hit the nail on the head um my my friend and colleague liliana mason wrote this book um, uh, and I, I really think that the title 
uh, says it all. It's called Uncivil Agreement. Okay. And, and the, the premise of the book is we actually agree on quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm. there, there is a fairly high degree of public policy consensus on a lot of issues uh, if, you, if, you really, if you really peel back the layers. Um, That's been the fundamental tenet of, of American democracy forever. We, we argue about all kinds of things, but deep down we pretty much agree on more than we disagree on. Yeah, but uncivil agreement. So right. what Mason says is that despite this, these, these public policy agreements, if we could ever get there, mm-hmm. right, deep down um, uh, it's conflict over sort of, you know, my party beating your party. Yep. And, uh, and it's, it's uncivil. It's, uh, you know, you'll, you'll, in, in, in American politics, we hear the phrase negative partisanship mm-hmm. a lot, mm-hmm. which goes back to this idea. We talked about the decay of institutions that mm-hmm. in some ways includes party institutions. Um, the number of people who identify as independent is actually on the rise. Yeah which at first blush seems to be in tension with the idea that we're sorting ourselves in these two partisan tribes. But in fact, what's happening is that you might identify as independent. Maybe you lean one way or another, but you really, really, really don't like the other guys. Mm-hmm. Right? So, mm-hmm. um, so no, I, I think, yeah, Rich, I'll, I'll, I'll agree completely with the, with the premise of the question there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't see President Kennedy as a particularly devout Catholic but as he ran as a candidate for president in 1960, he did experience anti-Catholic bias based on the idea that a Catholic president might have dual loyalties to country and the Vatican. Kennedy famously remarked, contrary to common newspaper usage, I am not the Catholic candidate for president. I am the Democratic Party's candidate for president, who happens to also be Catholic. I do not speak for my church on public matters, and the church does not speak for me. Does religious rhetoric welcome religious difference and encourage plural, uh, pluralism, coexistence? Or is religious rhetoric more used to divide? Perhaps it is both and candidate dependent. Yeah, I think it's both. Um, you know, we've, we've been talking a lot about this genre of civil religion. And the way I framed it is it's mostly um, used as a force to unite. That doesn't mean it doesn't contain divisive undercurrents, though. There are certainly people that hear "God bless our troops" and really get turned off by that. Mm-hmm. So, um, so you know, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush. Although I think generally, that's at least the aim mm-hmm. of of that particular genre. Um, you know, it's also important to mention, though, that there's other ways that candidates uh, use religion in their in their speech. I, I think it's less common. Um, but I think about some of Trump's rhetoric, for example, which was very different. Trump used some civil religion, um, but he also did things like include explicit appeals to Christian groups um, and at times um, derogated minority religious traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a, a really hard break with the civil religion tradition um, in some important ways. Um, and it's certainly not the first time that we saw religious outgroup appeals. It didn't start with Trump. Um you know, historically, there have been lots of attacks on candidates from minority religious traditions. I mean, I, mm-hmm. you know, you mentioned Kennedy, but we could talk about Al Smith in 1928. Right, yeah, right. We could talk about Obama in, in, in 2008. And, and there, were, there were false accusations that he was a Muslim, which, you know, A, shouldn't matter, and, and B, wasn't, wasn't true. Uh, there was the Jeremiah Wright controversy mm-hmm. surrounding uh, Obama. So, well, there was just the, uh, the 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 focus on his middle name, Hussein, too. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So, which which I would say is probably you know rooted in in in, in a degree of religious prejudice. And so, um, and so, uh, so so these types of attacks have been. I mean, Thomas Jefferson was called an atheist, right? So there, were, you know, these <laughs> right. types of of attacks were have been around forever. It, civil religion is not the only you know, genre out there. Um, you know, we started today, Joe, but you, you mentioned um, the establishment clause, right? Mm-hmm. So, so there are no religious tests for holding office, but at the end of the day, in the privacy of a, of a ballot box, right? Voters can do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you look at some of the public opinion data out there, uh, voters, for example, are still very skeptical of a candidate who would run as, as say, an atheist. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a, a strong majority say that that would make them less likely mm-hmm. uh, to, to vote for that candidate. So um, so I, I think there's ways that religion can still be really divisive. Um, 
But, you know, all this against this backdrop of civil religion, it is still, I, I would argue, kind of the most common genre out there uh, that the candidates deploy when they are when they're talking with voters. It it really is interesting the idea that 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 it's a divisive thing just basic based on the idea that like exactly what you said if the next major candidate for president came out and said I do not believe in God what are the odds that that person gets elected president in this country I mean th- those odds plummet yeah. don't they I, I, yeah absolutely but it but but you're right though there is a divisiveness to it Chris does does one political party have monopoly control uh, over religiosity um, and religious rhetoric and dialogue. I, you know, I, I, I can remember growing up, I used to, and I don't know, well, I think it's probably because the Kennedys were Catholics, but I had it in my head that Catholics are Democrats and Protestants are Republicans, which is completely not true. My dear friend, Mr. Moravchik, a, a, a perfect example of that. Um, do... You know, in your research experience, do both parties use religiosity and, and religious rhetoric and dialogue to, to direct conversation and influence voters? Or in contrast, is one party more secular in its, its rhetoric and its dialogue? Yeah, so there, let me answer the, the question in a couple of different ways. Yeah. Uh, because we started talking about voters, not rhetoric. And in terms of voting behavior, there are some pretty clear patterns in the electorate. Folks who are not affiliated with any particular church vote for Democrats. Mm-hmm. Uh, folks who identify with one of the evangelical evangelical traditions much more likely to um, to go Republican. I mean, these are these are really it's, it's sometimes called the God gap. Mm-hmm. So, in terms of kind of the public opinion dynamics and the party coalitions, um, there absolutely um, is is a is a really uh, interesting divide there. Um, it's not denominational uh, in the same way that it once was. Right. Um, and in fact, scholars argue that started to change. Um, in the late 80s, early 90s, um, when you started to see coalitions being formed across traditions mm-hmm. for political power. Um, so, um, you know, an evangelical like uh, Jerry Falwell and a conservative Catholic, Paul Weirich, mm-hmm. might join forces um, to, um, to enact a policy agenda mm-hmm. um, or to press for a policy agenda. That became a really important part of the Republican coalition. Um, and more recently, we've seen uh, the same thing happening with, with Democrats and folks who I don't identify with any particular tradition. That presents a challenge for Democrats, by the way, because, you know, a church as a location can be a place where organizing can happen. But if you're not attending church, there is no location for organizing right. to happen. So, right. so, so, but, but, but I, I think that those divisions are really real. Um, and, and I don't see them going away um, anytime soon. Now, in terms of does one party have a no- monopoly on um, religious rhetoric or religious language, I would say no. Um, so when I look at civil religion, um, uh, you know, across the last 30 years or so, in my book I went back to 1980, there's no real partisan trend. Um, both parties, uh, presidential candidates, mm-hmm. at least, from both parties, are equally likely to to use that sort of civil religion uh, genre, um, and so I, I don't see like partisan ownership of of that particular type of of religiosity. Um, I'll tell you about a project I did with some of my students, or actually I've been doing for quite some time with my students. Is we always go through, and we're really interested in. Um, House candidates. I'm interested in House elections. Mm-hmm. And so uh, since 2008, we've been scraping the website for every single House candidate, Republican and Democrat, um, for all of their content, all of their issues, their bio, everything. Um, You're a busy man. It's a, it's a huge data set now. It's, we've got like we've got thousands upon thousands upon thousands of candidates information yeah. stored. Um, and I just took a look after 2022 to see. I looked at some basic, just basic religious words: God, prayer, you know, so on and so forth, mm-hmm. to, to see you know how often these these terms were coming up. Republicans have a uh, are, are using religious words at a slightly higher rate. It's about 52 percent of Republican candidates mm-hmm. in 2022 about 42% of Democratic candidates. So there's a little bit of a, of a gap there. I think a lot of that probably goes back to the, the districts that they're appealing to mm-hmm. as well and what voters, what voters want to hear. Um, so there's a little bit of a, a gap in religious language, but it's not as prominent as you might suspect. So um, I would say that, that the gap is very real in the world of public opinion, but 
I would also say both Democratic and Republican candidates are still trying to make these religious appeals. Well, okay, so then to that point, um, researching you know, po- politicians' use of religious rhetoric and, and its effect on the public, um, you have uh, no doubt also in, investigated considerations are, uh, uh, influencing the, the, decision, uh, the decision process of a politician to use religious rhetoric in mm-hmm. the first place, right? Mm-hmm. What factors are a part of the decision process to use religious rhetoric, and and I, I guess I, I I'm tempted to add, how cynical are our, our political candidates when it comes to that this kind of a thing? But the, you know that 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 might be a little more uh, uh, proselytizing than I should throw in there. So no, I think it, I think it's important. You know, as as uh, you know, when when I study this stuff, I try to get a list of variables that mm-hmm. I can use to predict when this is going to go up and. One thing that is just not measurable is, you know, is this genuine yes. or not? Yes. And so, um, and so, I, you know, it's it's tough for me to speak to that. Yeah. Um, you know, what I would say is this: when we're, first off, when we're talking about presidential candidates, um, you need to use the civil religion genre. Almost every presidential candidate has done so mm-hmm. um, in the last in the last thirty years, um, which is which is what I've studied. So, at the presidential level, and you can think about it, you know, at, at the presidential level it's the most diverse coalition you're going to get, right? You're trying to appeal to all sorts of voters across the country. And so it's really important uh, that candidates invoke this. Uh, When I look at house races, other things that are important. So candidates are, there's a saying in political science, candidates are single-minded seekers of re-election. And so that's sort of my framework going into this. (laughs) Thus your interest in the House of Representatives. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so uh, the first thing I'm going to look at is is what does the district look like? Who are the constituents? Is it a religious district or not? Obviously, we're going to see more of this. And in fact... in certain districts that that are that you know where you might see like a lot of for example evangelical Christians, um, you might start be able, a candidate might be able to break away from the civil religion genre and use something that's more of a specific subgroup appeal. Mm-hmm. So uh, the first thing I would do is is look at the district. Like I said, I think there are some differences in party coalitions as well, and so that party's probably going to uh, to make a difference in, in what kind of religious language candidates are using. Another thing that's really important, uh, in political science we use the, the phrase candidate dialogue. Um, are the campaigns talking to each other? Um, and at one level this is important just you know to have a meaningful public policy conversation. Mm-hmm. We kind of hope that they're talking about the same issues. Um, but it's also important because you need to press back against attacks. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, another predictor, if you will, of, of what candidates are, are saying is probably what are, what's their opponent saying. And the final thing I would say is just, you know, the overall risk environment. I think at some level, um, when we talk about house races, um, using religious rhetoric can be a risky strategy. It can alienate some voters. It can embolden others. Um, I would say, say that it is probably more likely for non-incumbents, for challengers, running in some of these sort of long shot districts hmm. um, to uh, to uh, use religious rhetoric because mm-hmm. you need to. Folks, uh, you're listening to Public Policy this week on KYMN Radio, uh, AM 1080, FM 95.1, broadcasting from Northfield, Minnesota. My name is Rich Larson. Alongside uh, myself is my co-host, Jill Moravchik. We're talking with Professor Chris Chapp of St. Olaf College about the relationship between politics and religion. Chris, the midterm elections just concluded in November. Did you have your students engaged in any type of political research during this campaign season? If so, did that research have any notable conclusions, perhaps associated with what we are discussing today or other general conclusions about why the electric voted as they did, the issues or rhetoric that made the difference in this election cycle? Yes, I need to brag about my St. Olaf students, because yeah. <laughs> uh, they did amazing work. Uh, we ran, so uh, since 2008 uh, with my students, we've always run an exit poll, uh, except 2020 with, with pandemic stuff. So uh, we run an exit poll on election day. This year, um, students from my parties and elections class interviewed about 550 voters from across the second district, so it wasn't just in Northfield. Um, we uh, went to 14 precincts from South St. Paul down to Montgomery. The weather was not good. Students were cold, wet, and freezing, and they still uh, managed to do a great job uh, collecting survey responses from voters who had showed up at the polls. So it was really, really uh, well done. 
Um, students already uh, presented their results. We had a little public conference at St. Olaf, um, hosted by the Institute for Freedom and Community, and, and there were some really revealing findings. Um, so uh, first off, uh, this is not surprising, but Republicans and Democrats cared about very different issues. Mm -hmm. So when we asked what's the most important issue facing, uh, facing the nation today, Republicans talked about inflation mm -hmm. almost universally, and Democrats talked about abortion. Um, and it was not even close. Um, so, so Republicans and Democrats were really worried about different things. Um, now I'd say most political scientists don't think that issue voting is a thing. We kind of talked about this earlier with the importance of party ID. Um, but there were some circum, there's some circumstantial evidence that it really mattered, um, in 2022 in the case of abortion. Um, uh, Democrats were consistently opposed to the Dobbs decision mm -hmm. um, without having the data in front of me. I think it was, it was you know, over 90% of, uh, of Democratic voters um, were like opposed or strongly opposed um, to the decision. Uh, there was some splitting among Republican voters. And so that, to me, suggests that for Democrats, uh, and, and we talk about the red wave that wasn't, you know, mm -hmm. um, and that for Democrats, there was some potential to um, pull off some cross-pressured Republican voters who, um, who, who were a little bit ambivalent or, or, or who didn't like the Dobbs decision. So that's the second takeaway. Uh, third, crime, uh, crime didn't matter um, the way that I think many analysts thought it would. Um, mm -hmm. There were a lot of crime ads that were being run. Uh, mm -hmm. I would say in the second district, uh, according to our polling results, very, very few voters um, listed it as the most important issue. Um, it was just really low on the priority list. Um, so, so crime doesn't pay, uh, I guess, was the, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the, the message from that. Um, we talked a lot about religion, uh, and we see the same religion in the survey. We see the same religious party differences uh, that, that, that we kind of previewed earlier. However, interesting thing is when you control for abortion attitudes, mm -hmm. there, are, there are no religious differences between the parties. So in other words, um, if, I were, if you were to bet me whether or not I could predict your vote choice and I had one variable that I could use, mm -hmm. uh, it would not be your religion. It would be how you felt about Dobbs. Uh, that was just yeah. highly, highly predictive yeah. of vote choice. And that, was, that came through loud and clear in the, in, in the survey. Um, a couple, a couple other just kind of quick hitters from it. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say Trump was on the ballot in 2022. Mm -hmm. So we asked, hmm. you know, it's really common uh, in midterm elections. One of the things that you look at is incumbent party performance. Um, and so, you know, all the social science research would say that, that 2022 is going to be a referendum on Joe Biden's performance as president. Yeah. And by that, by that logic, that's, that's why analysts were predicting a red wave. Biden's not very popular. Economy, uh, consumer, you know, confidence was pretty low. Um, but, you know, Trump is still part of the news cycle. Mm. Um, and we asked two questions. So we asked, um, you know, do you agree with the job Joe Biden is doing as president, which is a really common sort of question that you ask on these surveys. We also asked, do you agree with the job President Trump did as president? So you used kind of a parallel question wording. Um, and that question, asking about Trump's performance, even though he hasn't been president for, for two years, mm -hmm. was just as predictive as Joe Biden, which is, which is pretty fascinating. Uh, among those, now, this is also interesting. We talked about negative partisanship earlier. Yeah. Among those that voted for Angie Craig, only 21% strongly approved of Joe Biden. On a, it was a four-point scale. So strongly, strongly approve, somewhat approve, somewhat disapprove, strongly disapprove. Only 21% were in the strongly approved category. That's interesting. Yeah. So, so not, not among Democrats, not a ton of enthusiasm for Joe Biden, but 87% strongly disapproved of Trump. Do you have any sense what Biden's approvals ratings are in the second district? Uh, I don't know in the second district. I mean, yeah. nationally it was floating right around 40%. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would, you know, we're kind of a bellwether district here. So yeah. this is about the same. Okay. That's just, that's just an, that's a really interesting, the fact that, that Trump, the, the direct re, direct reaction to Trump that doesn't surprise me, but the fact that that people can vote for Angie Craig but not be super happy with Joe Biden that's interesting. Yeah, and I could I could pull out the data set. I mean, I yeah. uh, you know most Democrats fell in the somewhat approve category, mm -hmm. so that that twenty that twenty one percent was just 
the the strong approval. Mm -hmm. But okay. but but Democrats, you know, Democrats weren't weren't there. They weren't right. totally on board with Biden. Right. Um, you know, the final thing I would say is that is that and this also fits with this idea of negative partisanship. Polarization is a thing. Uh, voters in this survey were deeply divided. Um, everything I just said about issues uh, mattered at the margins, but at the end of the day, nothing's more important than party ID. Party mm -hmm. ID predicts vote choice. Uh, uh, and in fact, we asked, we asked a question um, about the national economy. We just said, has the national economy gotten better in the last 12 months? Nothing expressly partisan about that, right? It's not, we're not asking about an issue or about candidate performance. Mm -hmm. um, among Democrats, 31% said that it had gotten better or somewhat better. Among Republicans, 97% said it had gotten worse or somewhat worse. <laughs> so clearly, <laughs> voters in the 2nd District are perceiving the economy through partisan colored glasses. That's just really... Um, uh, Joe, you've got a question. I I've do. Got a, I've I, got a follow-up question, too. I thought there was a lot of reasons to fire the politicians in office this election cycle. Inflation being at the top of that. Mm-hmm. But I also, when I saw that ruling, that Dobbs ruling come down in June, I personally thought that was going to change this election cycle. Yeah. I never believed in the red wave, certainly in places like Minnesota. But mm -hmm. after Dobbs, I thought that was a game changer from the day it came out. Did you have that same sense or? Yeah, I, I did in part yeah. because I've been, I've been doing this project with Paul Gorin for so long. And all yeah. the evidence we're seeing is that abortion and, and also gay rights are just different as yep. issues. They're, they're, people are very, very passionate about them. They're, they're more stable than most issue positions. People don't change their minds. And so, um, so I, I really thought that, that it, was, it was going to matter. Another way that it matters that, that just doesn't show up in our survey data because we only looked at voters, but my guess is that it, it also mattered in a lot of ways in terms of turnout. You know, midterms have historically really poor turnout. Mm -hmm. um, you get a huge drop off from the presidential years. Yeah. Um, and and turnout in 2022 was, was strong. And my guess is that that Dobbs also played a big motivating mm -hmm. role. Mm -hmm. I'd be really interested to see how how abortion as a as an issue is sort of perceived. Is it I mean, at one point, I think it was looked at as, as a policy issue. Um, but how much, how, how are people, are people seeing abortion now as a civil right? I mean, is that, is that maybe what we're talking about here? I think that there are a lot of different ways yeah. that, that you can think about, think about and frame a, abortion as, as a civil right, as basic health care. Yep. Um, uh, so, so I think, um, you know, and I think these are sort of the debates that that we're going to, and it, to be it, having. It is certainly seen uh, from from a religious point of view too. I mean, there's that that's the I think that's the most fundamental uh, seat of opposition to abortion mm -hmm. is. You know. Here, here's one other thing you know that's really interesting about it is with most other issues, you know, you can kind of state your position on taxes, mm -hmm. right? Um, but it doesn't necessarily have that. We talked about social identity earlier in this conversation. Taxes doesn't have that same sort of identity relevant component right. for abortion. We've actually got names, your pro-life or your pro-choice, right. right? It lends itself to these two social groups. And I think that that really amplifies, um, you know, in some ways the, um, the, the tension that's mm -hmm. out there and the mm -hmm. salience of the issue. Mm -hmm. yeah. Just one more, uh, just on, on, on your research. Was there anything that your data found that showed uh, something a candidate said that might have pushed voters away, uh, pushed voters to the other candidate? Um, in the second district or, you know, I, I didn't have a great sense um, that there was, there was any one thing. Like I said, I think, I think probably Republicans invested more than they needed to in crime mm -hmm. and, and what should have probably doubled down more on, mm -hmm. On inflation and also maybe responding to to Democratic messaging on Dobbs. Yeah. Agreed. So Agreed. If yeah. I had to, if I had to give sort of like armchair quarterback, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, advice, that that would have been it. Sure. I Completely agree. All right. This next question, um, I, I, I owe a debt of gratitude to, to Joe on this because he came up with this question, but he's letting me ask it because <laughs> I've wanted to ask this question actually for a little while. Uh, first of all, I want to say. I am a graduate of St. Olaf College with a degree in political science, um, and the the uh, 
what I know about the political science department today. You guys have taken, with no offense meant to the people who taught me 30 years ago, right? You guys have taken uh, that department about three light years farther than it was 30 years ago. So thank you very much for the work you're doing. Um, I say that as an alum. Um, you were recently named in July as the, the Morrison Family Director of the Institute for Freedom and Community at St. Olaf College. This is the question I've always wanted to ask you. What is the Institute for Freedom and Community <laughs> at St. Olaf <laughs> College? And, and then what is your role as the director? Yeah, no, that's a great question. You know, in some ways, it's kind of like public policy this week, mm. um, I, I think, in that we're committed to having meaningful conversations and a spirited yet informed exchange of ideas about meaningful public policy issues. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's really um, that's really what the institute exists to do, um, and to kind of you know sort of question easy answers, um, mix things up a little bit, yeah. like like try to figure out you know get to seek truth. Uh, I guess at the end of the day, which is which is you know what what college is there for. And so the Institute is, is hopefully going to, going to amplify some of the conversations that the faculty are already having in the classroom by doing things like having workshops and bringing in guest speakers and, and so on and so forth. So, mm-hmm. um, so that's, that's what the Institute um, exists to do. My role as director um, is, is kind of multifaceted. Uh, one thing that we do is just create programming um, and, and I'm working with faculty to decide, you know, who are we going to bring in as speakers? Um, what type of programming do we need? How can we be creative, uh, in the way that we deliver programming? Um, and the other thing that I, I think gets lost sometimes, but I think is, is just fundamentally important is to teach students how to have these conversations, to really be an educator and to try to provide some scaffolding so that we can enter into this, these debates, these yeah. conversations in a way that, um, that's going to be productive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I may say so, I mean, I, I think that the, that framework right there is necessary um, throughout society. Um, and if you can start with that framework on campus, that's just a, a fantastic place to, to begin, I think. Yeah, you know, it's, it's so... I wish people had tried to t- teach me that when I was 20 years old. Well, and it's it's even harder now, I think, you know, uh, especially, I mean, for all of us, but I think especially mm-hmm. for young people, if you're reliant on a social media algorithm to give you your news, yeah. right? If, if we're looking at news that's coming <laughs> right? up through Instagram or Twitter or whatever, uh, and that's going to be, that's going to be your main news source, you're going to be pretty siloed. You're going to yeah. be, you know, exposed probably just to one side uh, of an issue um, and, and maybe demonizing the other side. And that, that makes it pretty tough to have an honest conversation. Yeah. And so um, I think to just, you know, with the Institute, we're trying to do work to, um, you know, like I said, provide that scaffolding so that students can go into these conversations and have really healthy debates. Yeah. Okay, Professor Chap, give us some uh, conclusionary thoughts, if you will, about uh, our discussion today. Um, where is this headed, politics and religion? You know, the simple question. Where's it, where's it headed? Um, will religious com- uh, communication continue to impact politics? Um, is it, and really, I mean, is there, is there anything we missed in this conversation? No, I, I don't think there's anything that we, we missed. I mean, I, you know, I would say nothing stays the same forever. Right. So we talked about a lot of big trends and big patterns, um, the importance of civil religion, we talked about the rise of religious nuns um, and how how that's connected to the nature of party coalitions, but nothing stays the same forever. So um, uh, I think, you know, one thing, I guess one thing we didn't talk about is we got, we touched on it a little bit is, is the potential for some of this divisive rhetoric. I think that's mm-hmm. an important thing to, uh, an important ball for one to keep one's eye on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, you know, the potential for sort of, ethno-Christian nationalism, divisive rhetoric is, is troubling at this point. I didn't talk about it much because I think the levels are actually pretty low when I kind of look across all the candidates. And, but, but I think it's something that's important to think about. Um, and I would also just continue to watch for connections between religion and what are often called culture war issues. So abortion, same-sex mm-hmm. relationship, mm-hmm. Uh, rights for folks who identify as transgender, et cetera. Um, these issues carry tremendous emotional weight, and, and as I've argued, they can influence religion 
um, as much as they are influenced by religion. And so uh, those would just be some things to, to think about uh, as, a, as a concluding thought. That sounds like we need to do another show. Yeah, it does. <laughs> Maybe five or six more. <laughs> Plenty to talk about. Yeah. Let's, let's wrap it up. Another great and interesting conversation, but let's end it here. Uh, Professor Chris Chap, Rich and I want to thank you for the conversation and great insights this morning. Uh, yeah, my pleasure. Thank you very much. Please come back, uh, Professor Chap. That will conclude this week's edition of Public Policy This Week. We are on KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1 each Friday morning from 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock. I'm Rich Larson. My co-host today has been Joe Moravchik. Don't forget to join us next week when we discuss farming specifically. What are uh, our Minnesota farmers doing uh, to prepare for the planting season this coming season with our guests, Dave Legbold and Hannah Malika? And I have a feeling that it's going to be Joe and I hosting that show again next week. The objective for public policy this week is to inspire important, meaningful, in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and opportunities staying away from the high-volume rhetoric-filled conversations that are so commonplace today. Thank you for joining us today for Public Policy This Week. We'll be here again next Friday morning at 10 a.m. Have a fantastic Friday afternoon and a superb holiday weekend. Merry Christmas, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.